Let me read the passage. Hear the word of the Lord. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole, like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird, but these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that in our pursuit of wisdom, you would help us to tune our ears to the sound of your voice above all others and the voices of those who would speak your wisdom into our lives. Lord, help us to recognize and reject the voices of those who would seek to draw us away from what it looks like to follow you, the God of all wisdom. Lord, keep us from the path of foolishness, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the first poems I ever had to study and memorize as a kid was Robert Frost's famous poem, The Road Less Traveled. And it opens with with this famous line. It's meant to give you a picture of where you are. He says, two roads diverge in a yellow wood. And so with that opening line, you, the reader, are invited to picture that you're on a walk in the woods on the early days of fall when the leaves are just beginning to change color. And in that walk in the woods that is unfamiliar to you, you come to a place where the path you've been walking on now splits in two diverging directions. And so now at the split in the road, you have a decision to make. Which path do I take? Do I go right or do I go left? And then the rest of Robert Frost's poem, what he does is he has you stand there with him as he analyzes and observes what he can see about each path, as he kind of contemplates what decision he's going to make. And then the poem comes to this resolution. It says this, Somewhere ages and ages hence, two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the road less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. So what you're meant to feel as you go through the poem and you come to the conclusion is that at the beginning of the poem, you thought you were just at a simple walk in the woods at a diverging path deciding, do you go right or do you go left? But as the poem ends, what you realize is that that walk in the woods and that diverging path was a metaphor for a constant thing that you come up against in life. Because as in the woods, so in life, with every circumstance, every situation, every relationship, every decision you have to make, you constantly come up to forks in the road and you have to decide which path you're going to take. And one will take you down this way and we'll have that set of outcomes and that set of consequences. And one path will take you down that path with that outcome and those consequences. And the reason I bring up that poem and that metaphor that he uses in that poem is because it serves as a perfect illustration for how the book of Proverbs describes the path of life to us as we're seeking to walk in the way of wisdom. Proverbs describes life as having in many ways, almost an infinite variety and complexity to it. And every day we come up against some of those different varieties and complexities, and we have to make decisions about this or that, going this way or that way. And so 
when we have these constantly diverging roads that constantly lead in different directions, we need wisdom. We need wisdom to know how to decide between this path and that path. And the book of Proverbs primarily represents that there are two main diverging paths that we face. Now, there's a a different variety of where they go and different trails that lead off of them, but there are two main roads that you will face in life. And we can see those two roads alluded to in Proverbs 1.7. So Proverbs 1.7, it's the theme of the whole book. And it hints at two diverging paths. It says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And then the second part, fools despise wisdom and instruction. So in all the infinite variety and complexity of life, the two main paths we can take, one is labeled the way of wisdom. And you choose that path and you walk on that path when you walk in the fear of the Lord. But next to that, pointing in the other direction, is the path labeled the way of folly. And you choose that path and you walk on that path when you despise true wisdom and when you reject sound instruction, instead leaning on your own understanding and being wise in your own eyes. So throughout Proverbs 1 to 9, Solomon is going to lay the foundations of wisdom before he gets into the section that we're probably most familiar with with Proverbs, which is kind of all the different proverbial wise sayings. But in laying the foundations of wisdom in chapters 1 to 9, he's going to describe these different paths for us and the different names they have. He's going to describe the different voices that call us down those paths and and want us to choose the various paths that are represented. And then he's also going to describe the different consequences that are represented by those different paths. Well, our first lesson on the two paths that are before us in verses 8 to 19 comes in the form of a wise parental warning regarding one of the voices that is standing down the path of foolishness and beckoning and inviting us to come down that path with them. And so what we're going to see in verses 8 to 19 is that as we stand in the fork of the road of life, just down the path of folly, calling and inviting us is the voice of peer pressure, is the voice of people pleasing, the voice of the fear of man, the voice of cultural influences, whatever label you want to use for it, and all of the enticing promises that comes with that. And then just down the path of wisdom is the voice of parental counsel saying, recognize the voice of peer pressure and reject all of its false enticements toward evil. And so here's the the big idea of the lesson we're going to look at today. What, What this passage is teaching us is this. If you would walk in the path of wisdom, you must resist the compromising power of peer pressure. You must resist the enticing power of foolishness. So we're going to take that and then unpack it as we walk through verses 8 to 19. So in the first place, to resist the compromising power of peer pressure, whatever term you want to use for that influence, we must tune our ears to the voices of godly counselors. To resist the compromising power of peer pressure, you must tune your ears to the voices of godly counselors. So if you've ever been to an orchestra performance and you got there early, you're sitting in your seat, you've, you found your spot, you'll notice that at, before the concert formally begins, there is a lot of noise and sound going on. In fact, every part of the orchestra is playing various notes on the instruments. And to the untrained ear, they sound like very disconnected, um, even sometimes unpleasant sounds. But actually what's happening is very vital to the performance that, uh, that's about to take place. What every part of the orchestra is doing is they're tuning their instruments. So there's usually a, a lead instrumentalist who plays a note and makes sure that everyone else in his section of the orchestra, when they play that note, it sounds the same as his note. So that 
when the actual performance begins, what you hear is beauty and harmony rather than discord. Because if they're not in tune with one another, if they're not tuned to the right note in the right way, you do not have harmony, you have discord and uh, even more unpleasant sounds. In fact, in fact you know, one reason we don't use that piano and we got that piano is because not only is that not tuned, it cannot be tuned. It is beyond the ability to be tuning. It, it belongs not even in a museum, but a dumpster somewhere. <laughs> it was a beautiful panel one day. I don't mean any offense to it. But we need to tune our ears to the voices of godly wisdom. And that's one of the purposes of the book of Proverbs. Proverbs is written to help us tune our ears to the sound of wisdom and tune out the voices of folly so that we can enjoy the beauty and harmony that comes from living in line with God's wisdom. And so one of the primary tuning devices that God has given us to allow us to hear wisdom is the insight, the discernment, the wisdom that we get from godly counselors. So Solomon introduces us to one of those primary wisdom tuning devices in verses eight and nine. Look there with me. He says, hear my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. Now, with these verses and with the way that Solomon lays this out, we need to understand a couple important things about how the book of Proverbs is written and framed. So Proverbs teaches what it does about wisdom from what you could call an idealistic perspective. It teaches from a perspective of idealism. Now, what I mean by that is when it speaks about life in God's world, it speaks often about life in God's world from the way things ought to be, from the way things they should be given God's design and original purpose and plan for the things he made. Now, for example, what that means in in this setting, ideally and generally speaking, parents will be wise. And ideally and generally speaking, parents will be wiser than their children. And ideally, children will listen to their parents and they will grow in wisdom. So there are always exceptions to the rule, right? Kids, I see some of you shaking your heads. (laughs) Kidding. But Proverbs is addressing it life from the perspective of the rule, not the exception. It's speaking about the way things ideally and generally are so that we would embrace it and kind of cut with the grain of the world that God has made, as it were. Well, now also we need to understand something about the format of the book of Proverbs. It not only speaks from an idealistic perspective, but the format in which the, the conversations about wisdom take place is it's as if we're sitting in an Israelite living room back in, you know, in, in the ancient days and we're listening to a father and a mother sitting down with their son and instructing him and preparing him for all the varieties and complexities of life so that he might be prepared with wisdom to face what is out there for him. As you read Proverbs, not only are you in like an Israelite living room as mom and dad are teaching their son, but it also seems like you're walking along the path of life. Well, a father is with his son and he's, he points out this and he teaches him about that and he warns against this and he counsels them to go that way. So. When you read Proverbs 10 to 31 especially, it seems very random. It seems like they're, they're just kind of slapped together, thrown in, like you know, they, they got a fortune cookie and they just threw them on the ground and, and then put them in that order. But when you think about life and, and going through life, we don't always face things in a strictly logical and linear order. Sometimes we're dealing with laziness. Sometimes we're dealing with overindulgence. Sometimes we're dealing with pride. Sometimes we're dealing with coveting. And so that's how Proverbs 10 to 31 is laid out. 
It's laid out as if a father is walking with a son and as this comes up and that comes up and he sees this and he witnesses that, he's pointing those things out to his son that he might instruct him in wisdom. And so with that format, we have to understand that it's not meant to restrict what is taught to only those who find themselves in that exact specific format because that would exclude a lot of us. Instead, this parent-child, father-son format is meant to be a literary device that is, is meant to invite all of us in, young and old, male and female, whatever age and stage of life, it's meant to invite us in to adopt a childlike perspective. Like we're the son who needs the counsel of the wise, godly parents. And we're meant to say, as we read Proverbs, speak your wisdom, O Lord, your student is listening. We're meant to take that childlike posture of receiving, needing wisdom, and gleaning whatever we can from it. And so with that idealism, with that format in mind, as the reader, as the listener, our job is to draw out principles from what is taught and then apply those to our own unique roles and our own unique stages of life. So some of those principles will be more direct because you might be in the stages and places of life that are, are more directly represented. So you can just draw a straight line over. Others will be more indirect because you have to kind of draw a more roundabout line to get from the format of Proverbs to your stage and position and role in life. So let me, let me give an example of that from these verses. So here's an example of a direct principle and application from verses eight and nine. If you are a parent with kids in the home right now, what these verses teach you is that you have been placed as the primary professor of wisdom in your child's life. You cannot pawn off it to someone else. You cannot just outsource it. You cannot say it's their responsibility. God has made you the main professor of wisdom in your child's life. You do have teacher's assistance throughout life, but you are the main professor of wisdom. So class is in session right now. The curriculum is laid out for you in his word. And so you need to get busy teaching your kids the lessons that they need to know so that they are prepared for the variety and complexity of life. Now to all the children and youth, God has given you a resource in the home as your primary professor of wisdom that is far more helpful than Google, that is far more beneficial than social media, and far wiser than your peers, generally and ideally speaking, of course. So if you have questions, go to mom and dad, not YouTube, okay? YouTube's great for some things, but other questions are best for mom and dad. If you're curious about something, not sure about something, you, you heard something, go to mom and dad, not social media. You have a professor of wisdom, professors of wisdom in your home. So that's more direct application. Now here's some indirect application from these verses. So to the rest of us who find ourselves kind of outside this particular format for this lesson, what's the principle for us? It's this. Everyone is always in need of surrounding themselves with wise counselors. We always are in need of people we can go to for wisdom as a check against our own potential toward foolishness. We always need people who are wise because we always need people who can check us against our own propensity toward foolishness. So no matter how much knowledge you've acquired, no matter how much life experience you've accumulated, it's always wise to exercise a healthy level of skepticism when it comes to your own understanding and your own plans and your own counsel and your own thoughts. So Proverbs 15.22 speaks to this when it says, plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors, with many counselors, 
they succeed. Or as the modern proverb says, he who has himself for a student has a fool for a teacher. We need wise counselors. So tune your ears to the voices of godly counselors if you'd avoid the path of folly. Now in the second place, to resist the compromising power of peer pressure, we must discern what the voice and enticement of peer pressure sounds like. So look at verses 10 to 14. So the parents begin to warn their child. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole. Like those who go down to the pit, we shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will all share one purse. I'm going to make an educated guess and say that none of you have received probably a direct invitation from a bloodthirsty gang who enjoys ambushing the innocent for the fun of it, okay? Or if you have, I'm going to take an educated guess and say that such an offer was not particularly appealing to you. So on first reading, it seems that this is quite irrelevant to us. But you have to understand the ancient context. So, for example, uh, think of the parable of the Good Samaritan. The parable of the Good Samaritan starts with a man traveling and he's ambushed by robbers on the way. Now, why did that happen? Well, there's no police force. It's a long way between different cities. There's the cover of the darkness, the hills, the mountains, whatever you want to say. So if you wanted to get what you wanted, however you wanted, as quickly as you wanted, and avoid, and you know, make a shortcut, avoid hard work and all those things like that, you could go on the path between Jericho and Jerusalem or, or different places, and it was easy to do that and not get caught because nobody, there's no cameras around, there's no police force around. And so in one sense, what, what the parents are representing is this enticing appeal to cross moral boundaries in this particular way because it was a very profitable, low-risk venture, right? So that's the cultural setting there. But it's also not so irrelevant to our own day. So two social media trends illustrate this. So in 2022, the police in New York warned the public of what was called the knockout game that was gaining traction on various social media platforms. What this game was is you would pick out an innocent bystander walking on the sidewalk in New York, apparently, and you would film yourself sucker punching them in the back of the head, and then you'd post it on social media so that it would go viral for other people's entertainment. Now, you think that that had no traction. Well, it actually had quite a bit of traction in the social media world. And then in 2019, I think it was, there was what was called the ice cream challenge. I know it doesn't have to do with eating ice cream. You would film yourself walking to the grocery store ice cream aisle. You would take out a random cart of ice cream, remove the lid, and you'd either lick it or spit in it, and then close the lid and put it back on the shelf. Now, I just ask, if you do that, just don't do it to Bluebell. That's, that's all. You can do any, any of the ones fine, but just not Bluebell. And you would think, these, these are so silly. These are so childish and pedantic, and yet... For people of a certain stage of life, at, at a certain age, these trends were very enticing and they caught on and had great traction. Well, why is that? Well, it's because of the underlying enticements that the parents warn against. There, there's, there's this thrill and rush of crossing moral boundaries. There's a low probability of getting caught. There's the opportunity to gain something that has cultural currency and value, going viral, being entertaining for others, joining an exclusive group. And so the foolishness and idiocy may look different but it still abounds greatly even in our own day. And so in this section, what the parents do is they essentially give a three-part warning of the underlying enticements that peer pressure offers, calling them down the path of folly. 
So warning one, and I'll just briefly comment on each one. Warning one, beware of those who entice you toward the thrill and rush of moral compromise. Now, if there was no thrill and rush with sin, there would be no temptation toward sin. There is a thrill and rush toward, toward sin. And, and I know this because I've, I've experienced it. As, as a kid, uh, we would we play airsoft games, which is you know, these little plastic BBs, almost like paintball. And that wasn't enough to just shoot our own friends in an organized game. We, no, we had to shoot cars with airsoft guns. And the reason that took on, because there was a thrill and rush of running away from cars that you shot late at night when your parents didn't know that you were out. And so I'm, I'm sorry, Dad, okay? Um, but there is this call to the thrill and rush of sin that is often appealing. But in reality, wisdom teaches there is no such thing as a good moral compromise, and there is no such thing as a good thrill and rush of crossing moral boundaries. That feeling you get of the thrill and rush in sin, don't mistake it for real thrills and real rush, because in reality, what you're feeling is the searing of your own conscience and the quenching of the Holy Spirit. That's what the thrill and rush is. So that's warning number one. Warning number two, beware of those who entice you with the promise of no one will know we can't get caught. So underlying this kind of ancient setting of this appeal to kind of rob and and get gain is a sense that it is a low-risk, high-reward venture. We, We can't get caught. There's no way. But wisdom teaches that there is no such thing as a secret and hidden sin. Because Hebrews 4.13 tells us, there is no creature hidden from the Lord's sight, but all things are open and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to give an account. There is a judge who sees all, and there is a judge who will call us to account for all. So warning number three, beware of those who promise quick and easy personal profit. Beware of those who promise quick and easy personal profit. One of the things that the Proverbs is going to stress over and over again is that any shortcut you think you can take toward gain or, or something you know, value is never the right way to take. It is always hard work. It is always faithfulness over time. It is always diligence. It is always the path of wisdom. Even though it sometimes is a trotting and applauding, it is the one that reaps real reward in the end. The shortcuts never pan out in the end. And the Apostle Paul warns that the desire to get rich is a trap into which many people have fallen and been caught. So if you've ever been to a multi-level marketing pitch or maybe you've seen those ads on the internet where you can work from home, basically doing nothing and make thousands of dollars a month. If you ever followed up on one of those, like, like I have, you will know that if it sounds too easy to be real and too good to be true, it probably is. That is a general wise wisdom statement. And discernment would teach us that sometimes those who are most vocal about having our best interests in mind usually only have their best interest in mind. Not always the case, but one thing we need to be discerning about. So some of the wisdom principles that flow from this warning to know the enticing voices of the, of the influence of folly is this. All invitations to moral compromise whether it's something seemingly small, like just just gossiping about something, or or just getting even with someone who has what's coming to them, or going to do something you shouldn't do or watch something you shouldn't watch, all invitations to that should be responded to with an immediate RSVP of no, okay? And all people who constantly make such invitations to moral compromise should be no companions of yours. They do not belong on your friend's list. And then 
this other piece of wisdom. All gains that you make at other people's expense are in the end no gains at all. There are no gains at all. So if we would remain on the path of wisdom, we must learn and be wise to the voices and enticements of peer pressure. And the third place, to resist the compromising power of peer pressure and all its enticement, we need to consider the tragic outcome of yielding to peer pressure. So it starts not just with the parents saying, son, listen to us. Son, recognize the voices and enticements of peer pressure, but son, consider the outcome. Consider where that path leads. So look at verses 15 to 19. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths. For their feet run to evil and they make haste to shed blood. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird. But these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessor. Now, if you're familiar with Psalm 1, which opens the whole book of Psalms, you can hear all of that wisdom from Psalm 1 reverberating in Proverbs 1, 18 to 19. Blessed man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And it ends with, the righteous shall stand in the congregation, but the wicked shall not. This is what they're warning. They're taking that wisdom from Psalms and folding it over and expanding on it in Proverbs. And one of the goals of Proverbs and the wisdom of Scripture is to help us grow in the wisdom of foresight. So foresight is the ability to be able to analyze and see an outcome before it happens. It's the ability to to look at a road, analyze where it's going, and know what it ultimately leads to. And so if, if life were like a maze or maybe like an escape room, Proverbs is the map. It's it's the cheat code, it's the hints that you need so that you can know ahead of time what you're facing so that you can navigate it wisely before you even first encounter it. Proverbs wants to help us avoid being the kind of people who only ever have the wisdom of hindsight, right? Hindsight is what? 2020, right? Because we do something, we mess up, we suffer the consequences, we look back and think, I shouldn't have done that thing where I messed up and suffered those consequences. There is a better way than the wisdom just of hindsight. There's the wisdom of foresight, knowing ahead of time. So as one modern proverb put it, have the wisdom of foresight to let other people pay your dumb tax for you. No need to keep paying it yourself. Now, what I mean by dumb taxes, watch someone else and what they do and the consequences they suffer and then don't do that thing, okay? I, I paid my brother's dumb tax for him as a child and so he owes me a lot. The wisdom of foresight that these parents offer their son in, this, in these verses is this. In following fools in their foolishness, their moral compromise, and joining them in their evil, you are only creating a device of your own destruction. In following fools in their folly, in, in giving in to the enticements to moral compromise, what you're actually doing is creating a device of your own destruction. So the parents are pleading with their son not to be a victim of ironic justice by laying a trap for others that ends up catching him. God has built into this world natural consequences. And, and there's, there's laws of nature which govern the sun and the moon, but there's also moral laws which govern behavior in many ways. And some of those laws, God lets them run their natural course so you suffer natural consequences. I think about as a kid, you were told, don't touch that, don't touch that. And then what did you do? You went and touched that. And what what happened? It hurt really bad. It's a natural consequence. God builds those in to the world that he made. And so perhaps the parents illustrated this to their son by telling them the story of Haman from the book of Esther. Haman, 
jealous of Mordecai and the Jews, devised a plan to kill them. But what happened when his plan was discovered? What happened when his plan was discovered is that Haman had actually signed his own death warrant, and his device became his own destruction. Or maybe they illustrated the point by going to the book of Daniel, where uh, King Darius's high officials, who were jealous of Daniel's prosperity and his prominence and his position, thought, let's devise a plan where we can trap Daniel so that we get rid of him and we don't need to deal with him anymore. So they devise a plan, which includes lions in a den, and they intend to feed Daniel to that lion in the den. But what happens in the end? They become the lion's lunch in the end. They create a device of their own destruction. And there's, there's a Greek myth. I forget, I forget the name of the person, but he's working for an evil king, and he wants to get on his good side. And so he creates a uh, torture execution device. And he presents it to the king thinking, this would be perfect because he loves to kill people and I have a device for him. Well, guess who was the first uh, member to be used in that torture device and execution? It was the person who made it. He created a device of his own destruction. The God of justice always foils the plan of the unjust, either in this life through natural consequences or in the next life through eternal consequences. So by considering the tragic outcome of yielding to the enticement of fools, we gain the wisdom of foresight to avoid such consequences. Well, finally, to resist the power of peer pressure, we need something more than just wisdom. We need what the gospel alone can offer us. To avoid the power of peer pressure, we need to counter its false offers with the genuine offers of Christ in the gospel. Think about all the enticement of fools, all the power of peer pressure, all of the influence of cultural trends, the allure of trying to keep up with the Joneses, whatever term it may be most appropriate to you in your situation, whatever you want to label it, all of that enticement is nothing more than fool's gold. It is a counterfeit promise. It's counterfeit enticement and counterfeit offers. And what is it counterfeiting? It is counterfeiting what Christ alone truly offers us in the gospel. Let me just take two of its counterfeit offers and show how the gospel offers the real thing. The power of peer pressure lies in the fact that it appeals to our human longing for acceptance and approval. And the reason it's especially so strong in in, in young people is that we we feel it most strongly. We're, We're making our way in the world and we want to find a group that we fit in with. We want to be accepted and approved by others. So if I act like they do, if I go along with them, if I, if I say what they say, if I wear what they wear, then they'll accept me and they'll approve me and I'll get what I'm really looking for. But only in Christ do we truly receive the only acceptance and approval that really matters. The only acceptance and approval that will never fluctuate and change. And the only acceptance and approval that will truly satisfy. As Charles Spurgeon put it, all the love and acceptance that perfect obedience could have ever earned from God now belong to you because Christ was perfectly obedient on your behalf and has credited all his righteousness to your account. You stand before God today in Christ, accepted and approved in his beloved and well-pleasing son. That's where acceptance and approval are truly found. Also, the power of peer pressure lies in the fact that it appeals to our human craving for community. Even misery loves company. Even evildoers want a gang to go along with. We want to be one of the guys. We want to be part of the gang. We want to be in with the in crowd. We don't, we don't want to be outside an inside joke. We want to be inside an inside joke, right? But in Christ, not only are we accepted and approved, we're also placed in his family 
and enrolled in the communion of saints that is the church. And this community that we're part of is not one where our, our standing is based on our performance or we can stay in or, or kicked out based on our performance. In the fellowship of the church, we have a gracious community that God has placed us in, one that encourages us with wisdom, that spurs us on towards godliness, and that links arms with us and helps us swim against the various currents of culture that we're facing and helps us avoid the foolishness of the world. And so the author of Hebrews 10 says, consider how to stir one another up toward love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but continuing to draw together as you see the day drawing near. God has given us a community that is real and is authentic and is built around the right thing. Any community not built around Christ is not the best, the wisest, the most eternal community. So standing at the entrance to the path of wisdom is Christ, the one who perfectly embodied and demonstrated the wisdom of God. And he's saying this, come to me all who long for acceptance and approval. Come to me all who are looking for real community who are looking for real gain and true blessing, and you will find what your soul hungers for. Let's pray that we would continually follow him down that path.